Welcome to Integrated Rhythm with Jisomo and Bobby. Two swing dancing besties navigating race and the black experience in swing dancing, jazz dancing, and other Afrocentric dances. Today we are talking with Dr. Nicholas Centino, a.k.a. Nico. He's an assistant professor of Chicano Chicano Studies at California State University. Specifically, his lectern is at the Channel Islands branch. Swing dancers in California have seen both his stylish clothing and his stylish swing dancing in the ballrooms for years, but they might not have realized that he is also an award-winning professor, an activist, an author, and a founder of an arts festival. Cool side note, he was recognized recently by his university for how amazing his online classes have been during the pandemic, utilizing the strengths of the online format to do some pretty amazing stuff. He held Penny Dreadful City of Angels watch parties while he gave extensive commentary on the Latinx cultural background of the show. He spun 30s and 40s Latinx vinyl on vintage DJ parties, and he streamed a ton of guest speakers to help keep the classes engaging. And, this is very important, he's my hat brother. Wide brim, stiff hats, teardrop crowns, lots of Stetsons. He and I see eye to eye on that. His new book, coming out this July 13th, 2021, is Razabilly, Transforming Sights, Sounds, and History in the Los Angeles Latina Latino Rockabilly Scene. It's an engrossing deep dive into the sights, sounds, and sensibilities of the Latinx rockabilly scene in Los Angeles, his ties to working class communities, and its dissemination throughout the post-NAFTA global landscape. By the way, when you purchase this book, which is going to be awesome, do so by Googling Razabilly, R-A-Z-A-B-I-L-L-Y, Nicholas Santino. Type that in, hit enter, and one of the top choices will be the press, University of Texas Press. You can buy it straight from them, helping support them in their choice to publish books about the people of color in America. And then that way, you don't have to give a large cut of all that money to Amazon.com. All right, here we go. Um, I like to say that Nico is a boss because he is. Oh my goodness. Why? (laughs) Yeah, we've all been, we've all been very honored and, and privileged and had a great time working with Nico in several projects such as the Balboa and color panels. Um, So maybe we'll talk about some of those things today. Nico, how you doing? I'm hanging in there, you know, uh, I'm actually not home. I'm in, in my office on campus, which is a nice little change of scenery. And I've been uh, doing my best to, you know, weather out this uh, pandemic. Um, yeah. But other than that, you know, I'm glad to be here, glad to be healthy and glad to be with a couple of my favorite folks. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about the book. Yeah, this was my dissertation project. So um, it was a work that I had spent close to about a dozen years on. Uh, A lot of that being um, time spent sort of within the the LA rockabilly scene and, and beyond. 
interviewing folks, talking to, to different individuals, musicians, dancers, um, you know, car folks, you know, the, it really runs the gamut. And really working to unpack the appeal of 1950s, you know, rockabilly music to contemporary Chicanas, Chicanos, Chicanex, uh, Latinas, Latinos, Latinx communities of, uh, of our present. So the, the you know, as a book that covers, you know, uh, a pretty broad swath of, of territory, uh, both kind of historically and, and, and also, you know, looking at the contemporary moment, um, the book at the time, which was sort of something that was kind of in the moment, really is uh, focused on uh, kind of a moment in recent history, which is the, the, the 2000s and, and early 2010s. And so um, it, it's a book that sort of looks at that moment in time, both sort of politically and culturally, as one that, you know, it definitely informs our own moment, right, our own historical moment in 2021, but also is a little bit removed. And so, you know, part of going back and, and returning to that um, observation research was really doing the, you know, rolling out my sleeves and, 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 and contextualizing historically what it felt like to be in the mid 2000s, what it felt like to be and, and live through uh, the Great Recession, which I think for someone who, you know, was in their tw 20s uh, during, you know, the, the 2000s, uh, doesn't feel like history, but for, you know, um, college freshmen who are, you know, just turning 18 and in 2022, you know, might as well be, you know, uh, a million years ago. So um, the, the, the book itself, you know, it, it gets into um, culture and in history, but for the most part, it, it's really about memory and, and the importance and, and impact of memory, especially for folks coming from marginalized communities. Oh man, that sounds awesome. What, uh, so you also do studies in, in jazz history or, or you know, in, in 1930s, 40s cultural history. Have, what are some of the through lines that, that, that you've noticed come through that from then, from that area in Los Angeles to the 1950s to then the modern era? Yeah, you know, um, it, it's an old saying, you know, wherever there is, um, Wherever there's oppression, there is resistance, right? And, and those forms of resistance can take different, um, different appearances, right? So, you know, sometimes you have direct uh, political, you know, movements like the civil rights movements. And then sometimes you have things that occur in, more in the cultural sphere, sphere. And so with, uh, you know, looking at rock and roll, right? Looking I'm, at I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Nico. As soon as yeah. you start answering that question, my, my Zoom froze. Oh, no worries. So I'm so yeah. sorry if you don't no, mind just no kind of taking it from the top again. Yeah. So, you know, thinking about sort of the, the direct through lines, right, that connect um, history and memory, especially as it relates to, you know, cultural practices for marginalized communities, you know, communities of color. You know, there's this old saying that wherever there is, you know, wherever there is oppression, right, that there is also resistance. And those types of resistance can take, you know, different forms. Right. And so you have, you know, direct political forms of resistance, protests, marches, um, you know, uh, things that people associate with stuff like the civil rights movement. Right. Montgomery bus boycott, so on and so forth. Uh, but there's also forms of resistance that uh, occur more in the cultural sphere. Right. So music, dance, 
those are things that you know typically we don't think about as having a political edge. But when we look at how people are afforded ways to express themselves, right, given their historical moment, sometimes those cultural forms of resistance are the most that they can do in that moment, given their context, right? So, you know, if you look at youth, right, you look at youth of the 1940s. And so uh, a lot of times, you know, when we talk about the Latinx community and that history, especially for Mexican-Americans in Southern California, people point to, you know, the, the zoot suit moment, right? So you had these kids who were teenagers in the late 30s, early 40s, um, you know, they're kids, they're, they're, they're you know, they're, they're, they're minors, obviously, you know, they're attending schools, if they're not, have, if they haven't dropped out or been kicked out or pushed out, you know, they're learning about their rights as American citizens. And there's a uh, very stark division between what they're being told are their rights and what, in fact, are the rights afforded to them, right? So for, for those kids, right, they may not at that moment, right, as, as a junior high student or as a, you know, freshman or sophomore in high school, have the wherewithal to, you know, um, boycott or, or, or walk out of school the way that, you know, those same kids, uh, well, the same, the kids of those kids would do in 1968 at those same schools, right? But you know what, I'm going to resist through, um, through my style, through, you know, you can't tell me how to dress, I'm going to wear this, this zoot suit, right? Or you can't tell me, you know, what music is, 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 is good music or bad music, I'm going to choose for myself, right? And it's going to be swing music, right? Um, you can't tell me how to dance, right? So these are different ways in which, uh, you know, these kids, right, are able to express agency. They're able to express their, uh, I don't know, rebellion or independence, um, given the context in which they live under, right? So they may not be able to, right, have the wherewithal or, or even the capacity, right, to stage walkouts or sit-ins. And so their resistance is going to take uh, maybe a little bit of a different form. Um, and so you see, you know, that type of um, rebellious spirit, right, carry through the swing era into the rock and roll era, you know, um, and, and sort of be kind of a, maybe a torch, you know, picked up, uh, you know, and, and through, through punk and through these other um, sort of, you know, alternative forms of, of, of culture wrapped around music well into later, and, and well into later uh, generations. And so, for me, you know, looking at kind of the, the, the rockabilly subculture in LA, there's, there's threads of that there, right? And, and it's interesting with rockabilly in, in so much that it's uh, a contemporary scene that, um, you know, at, at the same time sort of yearns for that teenage rebellion, but for, um, for a lot of scenes, you know, um, in LA and, and more specifically outside of LA, there's a yearning for the culture and politics of the Jim Crow era. You know, if you go to a rockabilly show outside of Los Angeles, you know, Midwest or elsewhere, you're gonna see a lot, you're gonna see a whole lot of Confederate flags. Um, and so for me, you know, unpacking how and why rockabilly with all this baggage, right? All this sort of mid-century um, anti-LGBT, you know, pre-women's live, um, you know, Jim Crow, baggage like you know what was it about this music and this this scene the subculture that was appealing to um brown youth right um in, in la and so um a part of you know sussing that out was the uh capacity that the scene provided folks an opportunity to really 
interrogate their their own past on on their terms. And so, you know, because I like the I like rockabilly music. I think it's cool music. It's not necessarily my favorite genre of music. And for you know a, a lot of folks within the rockabilly scene in LA, um, you know, there there there's a variety of, of tastes. And so, yes, it is about the music. But in some ways, it's also about the memory of that moment and, and that history and, and, and cementing your identity to being one that does have a history and does have importance and, and is a part of the, you know, the, the fabric of American society, more so than maybe you're being told you are. Um, and I think for Latinx communities, you know, who um, are perpetually told that they're foreign or they're unwanted, tying yourself to rock and roll from the 1950s. There's nothing more, you know, American than that. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're and you see sort of that, again, that form of resistance, right? If you're going to tell me I'm not American, well, guess what? I'm going to out-American you and be, you know, and be Elvis or look like Elvis or look like Marilyn Monroe, right? And really take on these icons of, 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 of Americanness and, and do it better than you could. I love what you said. Um, I love that um, wherever there's resistance, wherever there is oppression, there is resistance. Like that is so powerful. And um, this idea of reclamation is so cool of saying like, you know what? This thing that's been oppressive, this thing that you claim is, uh, is iconic of this thing of being American, I'm going to take it, I'm going to make it mine, and I'm going to be amazing, and you're going to be in all of it. I think that's so incredible. And so um, you actually kind of already started to answer the question that I'm going to ask, which is, um, how did you come to this study? And so um, I know that you are, as our speakers, as our listeners have already heard, you are um, so knowledgeable about um, uh, Latinx history in the U.S., particularly as it pertains to these specific times, um, and thinking about um, Chicano rights and the um, and then the overall landscape of what it means to be from this particular marginalized perspective. And so, uh, I, I would love to hear about how you made that choice to to go down this path, and then now you're a professor of Chicano studies and doing all of these different great things. So. Um, Thanks. Yeah. So for me, um, th there's sort of you know par parallel stories there. So one story is how how I sort of made this um, this this research project a, a huge part of my life. I'll start right there, and then I'll kind of work backwards into how I got into all this to begin with. Um, you know, uh, and this is kind of you know for anyone that's uh, interested in, in conducting research or or you know digging deeper into anything. Uh, sometimes the things that you really like and really love maybe aren't the best choices for things that you really want to interrogate and question. Um, that certainly was a realization that I uh, had halfway through this project. I thought I was cool. I thought I was smart. Um, I thought, you know what, I will, I will, you know, write and conduct research on this thing that I'm already doing and that I already really love. And uh, in some ways, you know, um, there was a moment where conducting research on rockabilly completely killed all love I had for 
the music, the scene, the dancing, it, 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 you know, it, it was so much uh, a, a transformation of these, you know, spaces of leisure turning into spaces of labor, right? I was, I was working, research is work. Research is really, it, it's, you know, it, it uh, makes you, it, it takes over your life. You know, you, you'll be in the shower thinking about, you know, what you want to say about X, Y, and Z topic or processing something that happened the night before and trying to figure it out and how it's going to fit into, you know, what you'll write about the, the next day. And so uh, for those of you out there who want to, you know, say more about the things that you love and the stuff that you do for fun, uh, you might want to think twice about that before you gauge into it. But then again, you know, maybe, you know, um, you love it that much. You, you, it makes you want to dig in also. So that, that's the other part of it, you know, through the, the process of the project, like I, I did, it did renew my love for that community and, and, and you know, and, and the music and everything that comes with it, um, warts and all. Um, the, the, the big picture in terms of how I sort of got into to all of this, um, you know, uh, it really speaks to sort of some of the themes of the book. And, you know, the, the tricky thing with, with writing the book is that, you know, obviously it, it, I, I am the author, like there's, you know, aspects that are from my perspective, but I didn't want my perspective and, and what meaning I got out of uh, LA Rockabilly to be the sole perspective, right? So I wanted to make sure I talked to a variety of folks who had um, a variety of, of, of needs met by their participation in, in the scene or uh, as musicians or as, as scene promoters or, or whatever else. So, um, you know, there's aspects that come out in the book that, that do speak directly to sort of how I got into, in, into all this, um, into sort of, um, retro Americana um, culture, right? Whether that's, you know, Lindy Hop, Balboa, um, Rockabilly, so on and so forth, right? A lot of that had to do with um, my own, my own, my own family, my own family's relationship to these particular eras. Um, I grew up in uh, California. I grew up on the central coast of California. So I grew up outside of LA. I grew up in Santa Barbara County in this um, tiny, tiny remote farm working community uh, called Lompoc, which is, you know, it, it's, it's uh, for Star Wars fans. Uh, it's like the, the Tatooine of the, of the broader universe, you know, although Tatooine, I believe is actually Modesto if you follow uh, George Lucas's story. Uh, but again, it's, it's, a, it's a town like Modesto. It's, you know, it's one of these small California rural towns where not much really, at least when you're a teenager, not much really happens. Um, my, my family, we're a, a mixed race family. So uh, on, on both sides of my family, we have um, both Asian and um, Latinx backgrounds. So uh, my, my mom's side, uh, my grandfather served in the, the Korean War. My, my grandmother's a, a Korean War bride. And he grew up in Southern Colorado. He's what they call a manito. And so these are uh, folks who trace their uh, lineage in, in that region to um, the early colonial period. And so these are, you know, basically these are pre-American Americans. They, they've been there since before um, the, the border crossed them. Uh, my dad's side, uh, his mom is from Mexico. She's from Sonora. Uh, and a region where the indigenous people of the, the Yaqui and Opaca live. 
And so it, you know, the, the, the history of the, the, the Yaqui uh, nation, the OMA is, is very rich and, 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 and tra very tragic in some ways. And so a lot of indigenous communities from this area of Mexico either um, were uh, 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 either fled or uh, a lot of them um, essentially kind of went underground and, and denied their indigenous heritage. And um, again, as, as a form of survival. Uh, this was a moment in time when um, the UMA were being uh, shipped uh, uh, miles to work as forced laborers in the southern part of Mexico. And so um, there were very high stakes for those community members at that time. And so it's one of the reasons why you have a, a large Yaqui community in, in Arizona. You know, a lot of the community that were in Sonora had, um, had migrated there to avoid, um, avoid persecution. So uh, her, uh, my, uh, so she was from Sonora and her husband was from the Philippines. He was, he was one of the original Manogs that had uh, migrated to California in the 1920s as laborers. And so uh, growing up with this very um, racially, culturally diverse household and having to navigate, you know, uh, different cultural expectations and, and social mores you know, I, I had the I had the Mexican uh, uh, parents, you know, telling me to, to look me in the eye when I'm talking to you. And I had the Asian ones telling me, don't look at me, look down at the ground when I'm telling you that you did something wrong. And, and so having to navigate all of that, you know, was was definitely a challenge. And so one way in which I did that was turning to history and turning to like, let me let me figure out what's going on here. Right. And um, I you was know, a kid growing up in the, the 1990s, right? As a teenager in the 1990s, um, there was sort of, you know, um, well, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, my parents were uh, teenagers in the 1970s. And so during the, the early 1970s, late 1960s, there was a sort of a cultural renaissance within the Chicano community, Mexican-American community. And so you had um, sort of a, a rebirth of cultural productions coming out of uh, you know, Southern California and all over through the Southwest. And a big part of that was uh, car customizing. And so my dad had a, a lowered Grand Prix um, that he would cruise around town in. And when, when my mom would get mad at him, she would say, get in your Grand Pricks and, and get out of here. Um, so, you know, that, uh, that legacy of, of low riding stretches back to uh, the 1940s with, you know, we mentioned the, the zoot suiters previously. Well, when, you know, the zoot suit riots happened and it was no longer safe to wear these outfits anymore, you know, um, these kids who are now becoming adults found ways to express themselves uh, in, in different avenues. And one way to do that was that, um, was to fix up your car. Um, you know, sort of quick little history thing post, you know, post-war folks are coming back from, you know, overseas, if, if you know, servicemen, um, sort of the Rosie the Riveter type folks had money in their pocket. And so uh, you had people buying new cars and with people buying new cars, there's a bunch of used cars that were available to communities that were uh, relatively uh, less well-to-do, right? Blue-collar communities, African-American communities, you know, um, uh, blue collar white folks and, and Chicanos and Latinos. And so you had, you know, the, the, the birth of hot rodding and the birth of low riding in, in Southern California. And so this was something that my, my dad and my mom were into. 
And they were, you know, into low riding, but also they were into, you know, soul music, um, sort of, you know, what would later be called be called the the West Coast East East Side Sound. And uh, this was all stuff that they, you know, had um, passed down or was just at home for me. You know what I mean? And it was never something that I kind of gravitated to. Like I appreciated it for what it was. But like, again, you know, pairing that experience with my parents with this previous experience of just having to dig into history to make sense of everything. Like I was, you know, got really curious, like, well, where did, where did this come from? Like, where did the Isley Brothers sound come from? Like, where did, you know, Motown come from? Uh, where did like the stack sound come from? And that started taking me to the 1950s. And that started taking me to the 1940s. And that started taking me to the 1930s. At the same time, you had uh, the, the neo swing movement hit. So you had, you know, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. They're, they're from Santa Barbara, you know, which is, or they're from Ventura. Uh, you know, I grew up around Santa Barbara. World Crown Review that these were all bands that were on MTV when MTV actually played music videos and such. So, um, you know, there was this uh, resurgent interest in those particular eras at a time when I was trying to find out more about you know, what, where, you know, my parents' experience had come from, my grandparents' experience had come from, and, and how I fit into that, and I, um, I bought in, I bought into the, the, the Neil Swing stuff, I bought all the Royal Crown Review, you know, CDs, and whatever movies came out, you know, I was, I was there, um, I had, I had that damn Gap, commercial on VHS bootlegged off of TV, you know, <laughs> so um, I, you know, I, I, um, I really, I, that was a cool thing in the 90s, right, and uh, a lot of those guys still perform, I love seeing them, and, you know, um, always never miss an opportunity to, to check out uh, any of those Neil Swing performers when they perform now, uh, in part because that was such a huge part of my, you know, of, of my teenage years, and and, uh, and they're awesome guys, also. They're you know, favorite musicians and such. So that uh, that reminds me of a few stories. But uh, so I was, I'm right there with you, Nico. For those of you who <laughs> aren't watching the video, I had Gap commercial on on VHS. <laughs> I had all the albums, and hilariously, I had I when I was in high school, I loved classic rock you know that was what my family listened to a lot and uh those were my dad's albums and so i went out and heard a lot of great rock bands you know like i heard pink floyd when i was like 16 and um and you know those are loud bands mm -hmm. when i got into neo swing and went to see like uh cherry pop and daddy's perform that was far louder like i <laughs> hurt my hearing more from neo swing trumpets into the <laughs> microphone than any electric guitar i think um i ever heard uh that also leads to the question is the song zoot suit riot how factually accurate is this i don't even remember are there myths are there problems with the song zoot suit riot? maybe that's a whole different discussion yeah, no, maybe that's a no. part two of the podcast is a breakdown of the zoot suit riot song <laughs> Yeah, that's for so there's there's the uh, the uh, it's not a triumvirate because triumvirate would be three, but there's there's the uh, duality of of Zutsu Riot and Hey Pachuco, right? So uh, the two sort of neo swing songs that talk about you know uh, sort of that moment, right? Um, 
Zutsu Riot uh, is I, I I will I sort of think about Zutsu Riot as if as if the propaganda machine of the LA Times and the LA Herald Examiner had created a song to um, sort of uh, perpetuate violence against uh, you know the the Zoot Suiters at that moment that would have been Zutsu Riot. It, it's you know if you listen to the lyrics, it's sort of written from the perspective of sort of, you know, uh, Anglo uh, LA society at that time. Oh yeah, the um, drunk uh, or the drunk sailors or the- Yeah, and the, now, now you sailors know where your your women come for love. That particular line, um, you know, the, that was a rallying cry for the, the rioters. That was a rallying cry for, you know, the sailors and the white Angelinos that took it upon themselves to Right, go through these communities of color, and it started. You know, it, it, the, the weird thing about the Zoot Suit Riot is that the Zoot Suit really doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, the Zoot Suit became a, a focus point or excuse to 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 beat men of color. Uh, you know, started with Mexican Americans with you know the actual you know Zoot Suit Zoot Suited Pachucos, and then by you know it was a week long of writing by by the tail end of it they were you know they were beating anybody that was you know that was non-white. Um, and actually, the Zuzu riot was like one of uh, several uh, "quote unquote" race riots that happened in in the United States through through that year. You had one in Buffalo. You had one. Um, you know, you had different ones elsewhere. Um, hey, Pachuco, which is you know the sort of the the signature song of the Royal Crown Review, um, that was you know uh, written by Eddie Nichols, who's the frontman, and his buddy, the saxophonist uh, Mondo Durame, and Mondo's uh in his history is that you know his his grandfather was um, a zutsuter um his dad also was a, a car customizer uh and so you know uh the song uh at least the lyrics and for royal crown review are much more from the perspective of of, of a kid right uh sort of uh, having to deal with what it was like being a teenager in a zoot suit in the summer of 43 knowing that you're not safe when you when you're going to go out but you know what you're going to go out anyway because this is you this is my city too right um so yeah the, it was you know um definitely an odd moment in american popular culture when sort of <laughs> this all was happening but for me you know uh, as a teenager it was sort of the right thing at the right moment and that sort of you know um sold it for me and so you know neo swing kind of happened but at, at that time i was already you know, started collecting like 78s of, of like old music. I was, you know, in thrift stores looking for like old clothing and, and um, kind of getting into um, the, the history of it all. And it just so happened that this was a moment in, you know, American pop culture where that was, you know, the, the, the light was being shown on that. So, you know, um, I had, you know, in, in high school, I drove around in a 1946 Plymouth. I had, you know, my, my vintage clothing. I had my, you know, I had a zoot suit that my parents bought me and probably, you know, spent a whole lot of money on, but it was worth it because I had this cool suit that I could, you know, um, hang out in. And um, at no point at any time during those years that I ever considered I would be dancing. That wasn't a thing that I would ever, would ever want to do that, you know, that was a thing for dancers. And I was, you know, not that. I was a car guy, you know. I was a, I was a music I was a music guy, uh, and so um, it would be almost like ten years later where I would you know sort of get into um, get into swing dancing. Uh, like I said, I'm, I grew up outside of Santa Barbara, so uh, I went to college. 
um, got involved in activism, got involved in activism really, really hard, did a lot of organizing in college, specifically around you know, racial justice issues, recruitment retention of students of color. Worked in DC as an advocate, uh, working on you know um, Higher Education Act and other national policy, again, advocating for increased access for underrepresented communities. And when that gig was over and I sort of was like, okay, so your jobs are done, your job is done here, like time to go back home. I thought like, well, you know, I never learned how to swing dance. So maybe that's a thing for me to do when I get back. And so moved back to Santa Barbara, looked in the, uh, our, our weekly paper, which is called the Santa Barbara Independent, saw a little, you know, little quarter page ad, swing dancing with Jonathan and Sylvia. Like I called the number on the, uh, the ad yeah, kid, come on in. Our classes are Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and we'll we'll help you out. And it was Sylvia, it was Sylvia Sykes, and so um, you know, uh, took my beginning class and and fell in love with the dance in a way that I never thought I really would. Um, and the dance brought me back to all that stuff I was interested in, in in high school, and in you know, and so it kind of brought me back full circle in a way that I didn't really expect it to. Um, but all along the way, like all of these sort of facets had, you know, shaped my life in, in a very profound way, like I, that I, I can never pay back. And that, you know, uh, I've, I've only shared this a couple of times, like, I owe my career, like my livelihood, everything to these kids from the 1940s. Um, in a way that I could never pay them back. Like, you know, these, as, you know, as these kids would grow up, they would face pretty rough circumstances, right? Incarceration, heroin abuse, you know, all the, all the things that happened to working class communities of color that are gonna happen in the 1940s and 1950s happened to them, right? And uh, a lot of them didn't make it into the 70s, 80s or 90s for me to, you know, encounter and, and, and thank. And so, you know, um, people ask me, oh, are you, you know, so, so what, like you, are you, are you, a, are you, are you a pachuco? Are you, you know, are you a real pachuco? I, yeah, I, I can't, I can't say that I am because that, that was my experience. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't go through what they did in a, in a very real way. Like I owe so much to them that it's almost for me, um, not a disservice, but it's, it's, yeah. Man, it's it's a it's a lot to unpack. You heard enough and now it's time for the break. We here at Integrated Rhythm love supporting businesses that support people of color. Speaking of which, if you want to help dancers from diverse backgrounds to attend events like the California Balboa Classic or Camp Hollywood, please support the Pacific Swing Dance Foundation Scholarship Fund. Since 2019, PSCF has administered scholarships for California Balboa Classic and has awarded about 120 full and partial scholarships to dancers from around the world who may not have otherwise been able to attend. Their goal this summer is to be able to offer full and partial scholarships for up to 50 dancers to attend Camp Hollywood 2021. Any support is appreciated and donations can be made at PacificSwingDanceFoundation.org just follow the tabs to the PSDF Scholarship Fund. By the way, the song you're listening to and the intro song is all Baron Ryan. That is Laurel Ryan's brother. You can check out his music at baronryan.com. That's B-A-R-R-O-N, ryan.com. 
Hey everybody, this is Bobby White from Integrated Rhythm. We're here to ask you to please consider donating to the podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash integrated rhythm. You can do so by Venmoing at Bobby Swungover. And make sure to put a little IR in the note so we make sure it goes to the right people. You can also do so by PayPaling at Bobby White 3. And once again, putting a little IR in the in the window there. Doing so will help us keep this podcast going, and we love doing it, and we hope you love it too. If you can't afford to donate at this time because times are rough, we totally understand. We don't want you to put yourselves out. We want you to keep enjoying the podcast for free. However, if you have a little bit of pocket change in your pocket, we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great day. Now break is over. Now it's back to the show. Um, something that I really, uh, this is something that was, came to mind at the beginning of when you were kind of laying the groundwork, um, something that when I got into the neo swing scene, right? Like zoot suits were a thing, you know, like, you know, there's the zoot suit riot song. There's El Pachuco, by the way, Royal Crown Review can swing and that, that they were probably my Looking back, they're probably the one that holds up the most for me personally. That like, I go back and listen to them. Oh yeah, they had good swing rhythms. They had like really tight. Uh, most of the neo, by the way, listeners, if you haven't heard neo swing, most neo swing is an intro based on sing, 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 and then a rock chorus, and then it goes back to an entrance of sing, 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 and it has horns in there occasionally. But Royal Crown Review. They, they did it a little bit differently, if I recall. And, uh, but, you know, like you would look at the CDs and open up the pages or if you go on the Internet and look up pictures of them or whatever, you know, they're wearing zoot suits and they're like these really beautiful, high, super high waisted, super low draped um, zoot suits. And then, you know, go like like Nico said, you go online and you find out where they get them. And, you know, that shop is, oh, yeah, they'll get you a zoot suit for X amount of money. And you're like. But they're handmade by like some of the you know really old school tailors and that kind of stuff. And um, but it reminded me that like uh, as as a fashion lover, which all three of us are, the the style of a zoot suit is so goddamn cool. Like it's just like the lines and the angles and like the and like how like they're actually really comfortable to wear because I I had a zoot suit. Um, they're actually really comfortable and, uh, and you feel just ridiculously cool wearing them. At least I did. And, uh, even though obviously now looking back, there were appropriative problems with a white kid in Atlanta wearing a, a zoot suit, um, for swing dancing events. But, uh, anyway, that's just throwing that out there that I, I think the, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of times the people of an older generation look at what their kids are doing and maybe especially what the kids of other ethnicities are doing and they might automatically deride those things. Um, and yet usually when you look a lot closer, you're like, Oh no, those like, they didn't just choose arbitrarily to do something crazy and wacky with a zoot suit. No, they like, it was a classy aesthetic that was intentional. From my understanding. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and again, like, you know, those appropriate conversations, those, those happen in the, in, you know, the 40s as well, right? Um, you know, the, the zoot suit itself, you know, as sort of um, developed and, and, and created and, and coming out of, you know, um, a very specific cultural experience in the Black community in Harlem, right? And then sort of um, disseminating throughout, um, you know, American public culture more broadly has different meanings for different, you know, communities, whether that's racial ethnic communities, whether that's regional communities, um, et cetera. And, and you know, um, within sort of the contemporary swing scene, like, you know, you say the word zoot suit and the decade people think about isn't the forties, it's the nineties, right? Um, in part because, you know, folks remember all of, all of the zoot suits that, you know, dancers had um, and were wearing it in, in that moment. And, you know, neo swing being a big, part of that within you know within the latino latinx community you say zoot suits and it's very much that world war ii you know 1940s there's no other um there's no other moment or, or cultural happening that comes close to any sort of um you know just that comes close to any mention of that word other than that particular right experience in the 40s and um for me, like I, I, you know, um, I've, I've gotten to know the El Pachuco family, you know, um, over, you know, these past, I guess, you know, since I've been a teacher, like 30, 20, 30 something years, or 20 something years, um, really great uh, mom and pop owned business and really invested not just in, you know, in, in the suit, but also the broader history of, of what that suit means for, for the, the community. Uh, in fact, we did a thing on campus with um, the business founder, Phyllis Estrella, when their business celebrated 40 years, uh, a 40 year anniversary. Uh, and to imagine, you know, to, to run a business, right, a, a clothing operation off of just one garment, right? Imagine running a, a, a business for 40 years off the back of just one style of, of suit. And of course, you know, there's different interpretations and different ways to tailor it, but ultimately just being this one suit, right, is uh, speaks to the power and, and um, still resonant power of what that suit means, you know, to black communities, to, you know, um, Latinx communities, there, there's a whole subset of history on, um, Japanese zoot suitors, the, the pachuque and, you know, and, and, and Filipino zoot suitors. And so that suit is coded with so much meaning and, and, and it can be different sets of meaning for, for different communities. But a big part of that is, you know, like you're saying is, is that, sense of dig and dignity and sense of, of just coolness, you know, um, which I think is, uh, is something that, you know, again, speaks to the, 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 the power of memory, right, and, and, and the need for that cultural memory to, to, to be passed on for a lot of community members when, you know, a lot of times they're told they're not cool, right, they're, they're not cool, they don't belong, even though in some cases, like, especially like Black folks, like they are the inventors of what is cool or what we consider cool. Podcasting ain't free. Podcasting ain't free. You may think it costs no money, but podcasting ain't free. We. So do you mind if I make a hard left turn? Um, I wanted to um, ask a little bit about um, your cultural perspective. So you shared that um, 
within on both sides of your family, you have um, both Latinx ties as well as Asian ties. And um, I know in a conversation that you and I were in, um, so Balboa and Color is not just um, an, an initiative. It is it is many things. It, it uh, is an educational forum. Um, it's a group presented, um, but it's also an affinity space on Facebook. And so if you're a person of color and you do Baboa um, or you're interested in Baboa, you're welcome. Um, but in a Baboa and color conversation um, amongst in the affinity space, you had shared a little bit about your thoughts about the current landscape and being in the United States in 2021 um, and, and kind of what it means to take in these instances of brutality. And I remember you talking about not being phenotypically um, Asian, but being Asian and um, what and, and the interesting interplay there. So um, it, this is the joy of people. We are <laughs> uh, the sum of our parts and you can't determine what those parts are unless you talk to somebody, right? So um, I, I really appreciated hearing you talk about that in that space. So I was wondering if you would mind sharing some of that. Yeah, with absolutely. Um, you know, Sean, Shawnee Brown talks about this, right? In, in, in terms of like, I've, I've, you know, I haven't been dancing forever, you know, um, but I've been dancing quite a while. And so, um, you know, I, my, my scenes uh, are, you know, LA, I lived in LA for a long time and LA, you know, kind of more broadly, LA, Orange County, and then um, Santa Barbara, those are, are, are two of my scenes. And so I've kind of been in sort of a part of those scenes long enough to just sort of be, you know, a part of those scenes. And someone who both sort of, you know, uh, isn't, you know, phenotypically um, API, um, and someone who is, you know, you know, as as a Chicano, I'm, I'm fairly, you know, light skinned, right? Um, a lot of times, sort of, you know, my presence as a person of color is 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 kind of rendered invisible in some ways. Mm. Um, and so, um, I think, you know, for me one thing that I've really had to fight against is that I'm, you know, uh, I'm a social dancer. So, you know, I'll, I'll teach sometimes when I need to teach. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll DJ when I need to DJ. But for the most part, I'm, uh, I'm good just to like go out to the social dance and dance with friends and, and, and be good with that, right? Mm -hmm. I really had to have sort of a, a, an about face for myself personally to make a concerted effort to reach out to new dancers, right? Specifically underrepresented dance, folks from underrepresented communities and um, do what I can to make them feel welcome and, and included. In part because I, I wanna see, you know, greater inclusion within our, our dancings, within my dancings in particular, but within all of our dancings um, as a whole. Uh, and so for me, like, I, again, like I'm, I'm cool just to hang out with friends and, you know, and, and not interact with anyone else, but that's in the long run, um, not entirely <laughs> that helpful in terms of, of building and growing our scenes, especially when it comes to, right, recruiting, retaining 
new dancers uh, of underrepresented backgrounds, whether it's dancers of color, you know, uh, folks who are you know gender non-conforming, so on and so forth, right? So, um, and a part of that really is like I I can't take my presence, you know, as, as a man of color within the scene for for granted. You know, I, I I've really had to think about well, how like why did I why did I stick this out, right? Like why did I stick this out? Um, in part, you know, obviously because I love the music and, you know, you know, the, the dancing is awesome. Like, you know, our, our dances are amazing, you know, cultural expressions and, and amazing ways to express, you know, yourself. And these are art forms, right? You know, whether we want to think about it that way or not, you know, these are art forms and, and we become artists on the floor in that moment. And what we create as artists is, is a beautiful thing. Um, but that can't be the only thing that made me want to stick around. You know that that the sense of you know sense of like community building and sense of um, community cohesion, right? And that um, you know that isn't something that just kind of happens, right? That 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 it takes effort, it takes you know um, intention and in, in, in scene building to widen our um, uh, not purview, right? Widen our um, perspective in terms of, you know, who we intentionally want to embrace in the dance, right? And, you know, I shared this in, in, in Move Together, but for me, it's a long-term existential question, right? As all of our demographics are, are shifting, as we become a, you know, increasingly um, uh, melanated population in the U.S., Right, um, you know, projections say that by twenty, you know, twenty fifty. That's not that long away. That by twenty fifty, you know, the United States will be a majority minority country. What does it say about ourselves when we have, you know, a community, a scene that over half of the population does not see themselves reflected in? Where are we going with our, you know, our dance? Where are we going with, you know, this art form? when um, the critical mass of people who make it up now are becoming a, a slimmer slice of society into the future. And so for me, like, like um, I don't want, you know, I don't want to be necessarily you know, ever seen as, as like a token, but I don't want anyone else to feel that way either, right? So, um, you know, whether I'm hyper, whether I'm hyper visible in a moment or, or I feel invisible in a moment, um, you know, sometimes I got to put that aside and in part because like, yo, man, like you need to make the effort to like talk to these young folks coming in and make sure that they, you know, that if they don't come back next week, it's not because they didn't feel like, you know, nobody wanted them there. You know what I mean? Like, you know, maybe it just wasn't their dance. That's cool. But, you know, if there's something about the dance that, that spoke to them, like there, that, there should be no impediments for those folks to feel like they want to come back. And sometimes it's, it's on you. Like, you know, you got to be the person to like go out and hand them a cookie or, or, you know, say what's up, because, you know, um, if nobody else is going to do it, like, guess what? Oh, it's on you. I, I do feel like we underestimate the power of cookies when we <laughs> talk about, like, how people can feel welcome in a dance. You know, and you know, we, actually, we actually talked to Julia, you know, about how much the simple refreshments are sometimes a really important part of, like, having a welcoming yes. family feel when you come to a dance. So I, I don't really... I'm not really joking when I say that about the cookies. Um, something that I think is, uh, I would love to give a shout out to Nico for is his dancing 
I think is so welcoming, by which I mean, uh, if you haven't seen Nico dance, he is loving it every second. He is doing his thing. It's, it's a really, you know, he's an individual dancer, which I love. I love seeing someone out there who doesn't look like other people, um, but he's killing it. And uh, so I, I know that like, if I walked into a dance and saw Nico just in a corner, <laughs> just like living it, I would be like, oh, yeah, this, this, this place is, is awesome. <laughs> I call it the Ub Iwerks style of dance. Uh, it's, a, it's like the uh, pre, like the sort of like Betty Boop era, um, uh, Bosco the Clown uh, animation era dancing. I, so I, I feel like you are kind of a beacon of inclusion. I will say, that um having talked to some newer dancers that if you have any skill on the, the dance floor you look into like a person looks intimidating but um <laughs> but um you're you are endlessly entertaining to watch and so because of all the things that bobby just said you're absolutely a joy to watch <laughs> and to dance oh my god thank you you guys yeah no it's true um i love what you said about being like we we are all artists on the dance floor because it's true and um something that i i keep trying to reiterate is that um dancing is for everyone we art is accessible to everyone and so yes. um you are a little bit further on this journey than most because you've been doing this thing for a really long time but um, I love that spirit of artistry and artistry and fashion, as Bobby said, and then also skill and dance. Um, the other aspect, like, and this is like getting like way into your business right now, so sorry. But um, the other aspect of inclusion that I love when I see you at um, events is that you're there with your family. And so that's the other piece of social dancing. So Bobby was talking about the food aspect, right? So, um, and even like the way that Bobby's taught classes in the last couple of years, uh, um, even in classes that he and I have taught, we talk about like, um, this is a party dance. These dances we're doing, it's like you're at a party. And so the fact that you're with your family, you bring that also, you're like, yo, it's us and we're rocking up and it's just here. And look at my baby, she's doing the stuff, you know? <laughs> and so, and that's just naturally inclusive because you are unapologetically all of who you are. Um, and of course, anyone who's met um, uh, the baby and Ana Rosa knows that they're incredible. And so, um, and can, and they both can cut a rug. So, Absolutely. But, but yeah. <laughs> But yeah, but I, I love that. I think we often feel like we have to bring a very specific part of ourselves to social dancing. But, um, but as you're talking about these different communities, people showed up with their crews, with their families, right. with their people, and you do that. Right. No, I think, you know, it, it speaks to the sort of um, broad um, breadth that our, our scene needs to embrace like I'm, I'm all for like you know what let me get in my sweatpants and go to the studio and like let let me figure out how to like fix my toss outs right like you know I, i'm all for that right or i'm all all for like you know what let me let me dress up super nice and, and go to this bar where there's gonna be a live band and, and it, me and my wife can have you know a, a nice evening out but more often than not you know um we look for those venues where you know we can just pack up the car and and pull in, right? Whether the, those are like weekend festivals or whether those are, you know, family friendly, local venues. 
in part because I think for both me and her, that is just how our families did things, right? Like, you know, um, like, oh, it's, it's time to go, right? And talking to, um, you know, sort of our peers, um, that, that cuts across lines in terms of like, not just sort of social things, but like political things as well. Like, you know, so many of like sons and daughters of, of activists that are my age, like they kind of like continued that work because their parents drug them to write a, a demonstration or even worse, like the, the planning meetings. Those are the worst things to go to as a kid, you know? Uh, but like you, you know, you get used to hearing these conversations about really, you know, uh, weighty issues and those conversations aren't taboo. Right. And so, you know, you're ready to take on the, the issues of the day when you're, you know, a teen or in your twenties, because you had, right. You know, listen to people tackle those things as, as a kid growing up, um, you know, uh, and, and so, you know, for, for us, like, yeah, we love, we love, you know, packing it in and, and, and heading out to, you know, to do social things. But I think also like, that is just, you know, not just a social practice for like us when we do leisure things, but also like just is just a thing in general, you know, and, 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 and you know, to someone like you see that within like other communities of color as well, right, where like, it's, it's always stuff as like family units. As a kid, like you resent it and like, oh, why do I, why do I have to go do this with my parents? But then like, you know, um, later on, like, you know, at least, at least for myself, like I, I saw the value and, and discovered why those type of things were important later on. Yeah. I, um, I love that notion of legacy and passing things down. Um, I, 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 I feel like we as a community in the U S and I'm seeing this also in other spaces where I've lived, even in Zambia and so forth, we have, we're, we're so programmed and we have programs specifically for children and programs specifically for adults, but the intersection of family and social experiences, um, like that's a little bit um, less explored. Mm -hmm. And so it's really encouraging to hear this, you know, and as someone who's not a mom, but has lots of friends who are moms, lives in a community, has, you know, um, it, it really is an exciting idea for me because um, people, as you know, when we look at societal challenges, we didn't just wind up here. We we were acculturated into this right. place, so we all got here collectively. And so, um, it in order for the next generation to pick up, there has to be some sort of knowledge transfer, and that can happen in schools. But often, a lot of the things that we're talking about as a society we don't explicitly address in school. So, um, and if you're not talking about them within the family structure, then like, it's like, where, where do we get our not, how do we learn about right. these things, you know? And, um, and so I, I just, I love that. And I guess that speaks so much to the spirit of activism that you have um, ingrained in, in your way of being. So, yeah. 